The other day I was at a service station here in Dubbo and uh, walking into the little shop that they had there, uh, there were all these magazines in a rack for you to take and they, they caught my attention for three reasons. Firstly, they were free, so my natural inclination is to take one no matter what they are. Secondly, they were called the good news, so that sounded vaguely Christian. And thirdly, they caught my attention because of the rather startling headline, Europe, a new superpower on the rise. And then down the bottom, Europe's rise foretold in Bible prophecy. So I took one home, had a read, and it's all about how the book of Revelation predicts a future alliance of ten European kings who, with the cooperation of the Roman Catholic Church, they are going to create an evil global superpower that will ravage the world. And you see, with the, formal, the formalising of the European Union last year, it's starting to happen. And it shouldn't be surprising that it's happening because it's all being predicted in the book of Revelation. Now, what do you do with those sorts of ideas? Could they be true? I mean, God certainly knows the future. Does Revelation really predict that sort of stuff? Trouble is, there's also lots of other different predictions out there as well, aren't there? Other predictions that are also supposedly based on what the book of Revelation says. It's almost as if every crackpot who has ever had a conspiracy theory about the end of the world, they always seem to base it on the book of Revelation. Exhibit B, a fellow named James Kingsley, who used uh, Revelation to predict the end of the world back in 2006. Quote, two or three MiG fighters will drop bombs on nuclear facilities in Washington State, Oregon and San Francisco. They will be done by a secret alliance of China, Iran, Syria. Somehow France is going to be involved. The attack will begin at 9am Pacific time and cause massive damage that will affect the whole planet. Unquote. Now, I don't know how on earth James came up with all of that. But that is a very precise prediction, which clearly did not happen. And so not only is James Kingsley left with egg all over his face, but the reputation of the poor old book of Revelation is again dragged through the mud, guilt by association, or because of another weirdo with a conspiracy theory, which has used Revelation to justify his own imagination. It sort of is enough to put you off reading the book for yourself, isn't it? Just in case you might turn into a doomsday nut as well. And that's a shame. Because what's pretty clear from Revelation itself is that it's not meant to be scary. It's not meant to be confusing. It's meant to be a blessing. In fact, it's guaranteed to be a blessing if you take it to heart. Have a look at verse 3 of today's reading. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Friends, if you find the book of Revelation scary instead of reassuring, if you find that Revelation makes you anxious instead of calming you down, you're actually reading it wrong. It's meant to bring us blessing. 
So how do we discover that blessing? How do we avoid all the harebrained conspiracy theories? How do we just sort of not let our imaginations run away with us? How do we read Revelation the way Revelation itself wants us to read it? Well, that's here. That, this is where our passage this morning comes in very handy because the first eight verses of the book, they orientate us so as to help us to know how to read the rest of the book. And they do that by providing three clarifying thoughts that demystify the book of Revelation. Three clarifying thoughts that help us read Revelation the way it wants to be read. Clarifying thought one. It's a book all about Jesus. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now that opening phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that could simply be a statement of ownership. Okay, you know, the, the handkerchief of Bryson, the revelation of Jesus. This is a revelation owned by Jesus. That's what it could mean. I don't think it does though. Because in one sense, it's God the Father who ultimately owns this revelation, isn't it? Verse 1 tells us that it's God the Father who gave it to Jesus to in turn pass it on to his servants. And so that opening phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is perhaps better read as meaning the revelation concerning Jesus Christ. The revelation of things about Jesus Christ. That's why the very next verse, verse 2, John summarises the book. He summarises everything he sees as the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so here we are in the very opening of the book. He's telling us up front, this is going to be a book that will testify about Jesus. The word revelation, it's a descriptive word. It means to uncover, it means to reveal, it means to unveil. So picture a stage and the curtains being pulled back to reveal the scenery behind it. That's the image that the word is meant to conjure up in our minds. Here is a book whose primary primary aim is to unveil certain things about Jesus. And so the first question you've got to ask yourself whenever you read bits of it, the first question's got to be, what are we being told about Jesus here? Not what are we being told about the end of the world. Not what are we being told about the rise of a new European superpower. You read a bit of the book of Revelation and the foremost question must be, what am I discovering about Jesus? Because that's the main thing the book wants to tell us. It's unveiling things about Jesus Christ. And if we just keep asking that question, if we just keep maintaining that focus, which is the focus the book wants us to have... I think you'll find Revelation much easier than perhaps you think. Especially so because of a second clarifying thought tucked away here in verse 1. And that is that this is an apocalyptic book about Jesus. See, back at verse 1, that opening phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation, it's not only a descriptive word, it's a technical word. It's the word apocalypse. And it refers to a certain type of literature. And so by saying that this is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it's actually telling us that we're going to need to read this book a certain way. Just like you read a comic book a certain way. Just like you read a poem a certain way that's different to a comic book. Just like you read a recipe book a certain way. You read an apocalyptic book a certain way. 
Now, it's no secret how you read it. There were heaps of them around at the, at the time of the New Testament. It was a style of literature that had lots of symbolic numbers and animals and colours and images. That's what makes the book so strange to read at times, isn't it? It's full of all these bizarre sorts of things in it. Here's the big thing about reading an apocalyptic book, though. It is meant to be visualised. It is meant to be treated more as a picture book than a puzzle book. So I don't know if you've ever seen any of uh, Jeannie Baker's children's books. Here's one of them. A bit like show and tell this morning, isn't it? Here's one of them. It's called Belong. This is a book that has actually won awards with the Children's Book Council of Australia. And the thing about it is there are no words in it whatsoever. There are lavish pictures, pictures full of incredible detail as you look out a window. So on the first page, the scene out the window is a young couple coming in the backyard holding a new baby. Second page, the dad is out the back now hosing a toddler in a wading pool. There's more grass in the backyard now. Some of the buildings in the background are a little different. There's a teddy sitting on the front ledge. And so it goes on, page after page after page of pictures, never a single word. Now, you don't read a book like that the way you read a novel, do you? You're not meant to. You're actually meant to just pick it up and admire the pictures. And the pictures build up a story. The pictures build up a message. That's the book of Revelation. It's a book of pictures, which is pretty obvious, really, because as we'll hear next week in uh, the second half of the chapter, the Apostle John tells us that he's describing visions that he had. Visions are meant for looking at. And so I guess it might have been easier if John had been able to have a video camera or something, or perhaps he'd actually painted a picture book. Instead, he's written it down, but he's leaving us to reconstruct the pictures in our minds. And therefore, I want to suggest to you the best way to read Revelation is to try and sit back and see it in your imagination. Try and see what John saw. Because what lots of people are tempted to do is to make everything in the book mean something. Every little word, every little phrase, every, every little thing has to be decoded. Now look, there are points at which a certain level of decoding is appropriate. And when it is appropriate, it's no real mystery as to what the symbols mean because most of the time John will tell us straight out what the images represent. And the few times he doesn't, it's pretty obvious because he's lifted the symbols straight out of the Old Testament. But in the end, the big idea is that this is primarily a picture book that we're going to be reading. It's full of visions that are meant to be visualised. Don't sweat the small stuff. We're not meant to look at every little detail. You sit that close to a television screen, you will hardly see any of the picture at all. You'll just get confused by lots of dots. You're meant to stand back and look at the overall picture. That's like reading the book of Revelation. And I reckon if you do it, you'll find Revelation a lot easier than you think. Because that's how it's meant to be read. Especially when you take in a third clarifying thought from these opening verses. And that is that this is an apocalyptic book about Jesus written to quite specific first-century churches. Now, verse 1 doesn't make that all that obvious. It simply says that it's a revelation which God gave Jesus to show his servants, but it's 
soon becomes pretty apparent that God has quite specific servants in mind. Look down at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And as we'll see next week in verse 11, those seven churches in the province of Asia, they are all named. They are all listed out. Here they are. Here's where they existed. They are all now found in modern-day Turkey. You can fly over there today and visit them, if the planes are flying. You can see the ruins. Now, this is helpful to think over. Revelation was originally written to very specific group of churches, churches full of Christians who have lived and died thousands of years ago. And we need to be aware of that perspective. Because, for example, back there in verse 1, where it talks about Jesus showing his servants what must soon take place, well, what must soon take place for the seven churches in the province of Asia in the first century, that may not necessarily be what must soon take place for us in Dubbo in the 21st century. I mean, I don't know much about history. I'm pretty sure, though, that Dubbo Presbyterian Church is not one of the seven first century churches in the province of Asia. And so that phrase about what must soon take place, that could be referring to events that happened long ago. And so, friends, as we go through Revelation, we're going to have to be careful. Perhaps we need to try and forget all the movies and all the preconceived ideas and what everyone says about future predictions. Bits of it could be about the future. But we're going to need to let the text itself inform us of that along the way. And we certainly don't want to read something like verse 1 and immediately naively assume that things soon to take place uh, are things that are soon to take place for you and I. We are not the ones it was originally written to. It was originally written to first century Christians, living in a time in history when the churches of Asia were going through massive persecution. It was originally written at a time in history when, if you were living in the Roman Empire, there was one very simple rule of loyalty. You had to bow down and worship the emperor as a god. And to do that meant that you ran the risk of... Sorry, to not do that meant that you ran the risk of being fed to lions. To not worship the emperor as a god ran the risk of you being thrown out of your job. To not worship the emperor as god meant that you ran the risk of not being allowed to buy food in the marketplace. And so every day the Christians of the seven churches of the province of Asia were faced with the same tussle. Am I going to be faithful to Jesus today? Or am I going to worship the emperor to avoid trouble? Am I going to keep testifying about Jesus today? Or am I just going to keep my head down? That's the context into which Revelation was originally written. And again, I want to suggest to you it's a very clarifying thought. Because as we move through the pictures, as we move through the apocalyptic visions, as we step back and take in what the pictures say about Jesus, we need to ask ourselves not only what is being revealed about Jesus, we need to ask ourselves what's being revealed about Jesus that would bring blessing to those original Christians 
to whom it was written. What does Revelation teach us about Jesus that would bring comfort to those persecuted churches in the first century Asia to whom it was originally written? And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that a book that's all about the rise of Europe as a global superpower in the 21st century, I'm not sure that would be much of a blessing at all to a first century Christian being forced to worship the Roman emperor. With all due respect, I think those sorts of ideas have perhaps missed the bait a little bit. Because Revelation itself is telling us in its opening words, this is an apocalyptic book. It's a picture book about Jesus. And it's written to first century churches. That is how it wants to be read. And when we do that, I think, A, it'll turn out to be a lot easier than you reckon. B, it'll safeguard us from just being another weirdo with a conspiracy theory about how the world's going to end. And C, it will bring great blessing, just as it promises to do. Even here in these opening verses, because even in this morning's verses, reading, as, as short as it is, There's wonderfully comforting things about Jesus to be seen. Comforting things, comforting truths that would have been especially powerful to those early persecuted churches in Asia. Have a look, for example, at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Could you notice with me how Jesus is described in that last sentence? The faithful witness. What do you think that says to a first century Christian in danger of persecution from Rome? It says... Hey, you keep being a faithful witness too. The firstborn from the dead. What do you think that says to a first century Christian in danger of persecution from Rome? It says Jesus has conquered death. Don't be afraid of it should you be threatened with it. The ruler of the kings of the earth. What do you think that says to a first century Christian in danger of persecution from Rome? It says... Jesus is in charge. Do not be intimidated by Rome. Jesus rules the emperor. But I wonder whether the greatest comfort of all in this morning's short little passage, I wonder whether the greatest comfort may actually have been those four simple words at the beginning of verse 7. Look, he is coming. He's coming. A friend of mine who's a very blokey, bloke, rough and tough sort of guy once told me of an occasion when he had been in England, in London, for quite a few weeks going to a number of work conferences. The day came for him to fly home. He'd been counting down the days for this. He'd been away from his family for ages. Uh, His luggage was full of presents for everyone. There was a big 
family birthday coming up, I think it was for one of his children, uh, that he would arrive just in time for, uh, and he had never missed birthday of any of his children before. But when he got to the airport, he was told that his flight had been overbooked and that he would have to wait for another one. Well, he wasn't very impressed by this, so he demanded to see someone in authority. Out of the office came a very impressive-looking, very official-looking woman. She clearly looked like uh, she could make things happen. He poured out his story. Been away from ages. Never missed a birthday. The kids will be devastated. Desperately counting down the days. And at the end of it all, this official-looking woman drew herself up to her full height, looked him in the eye and said, Sir, you will be on that flight. And Ian said he started to cry. He said he felt like a real goose. He was so embarrassed, blubbering away. But just to hear someone in charge, just to hear someone with authority say, I'm going to sort it out. It'll work out. Sir, you will be on that flight. And he wept. I wonder if that's how the early Christians felt under persecution from Rome when they first read verse 7. As a person in charge says, it's going to get sorted. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. What do you think that says to a first century Christian in danger of persecution from Rome? It says a day is coming when everything will be right. Can you feel the blessing in that sort of message? For those of you here who have been made fun of for being a Christian, for those of you here who have felt excluded from things because you follow Jesus, For those of you here who feel an awkwardness when conversations turn to crudity or gossip and you follow Jesus so you don't want to be there. For those of you who have been made to feel the odd one out in the family because you're the religious one. For those of you whose children are given a hard time because you don't let them see the sorts of movies that everyone else seems to see and you don't let them go to the parties that everyone else seems to go to the parties of. For those of you who are here, who try and do things honestly and with integrity and you have actually been disadvantaged because of that. A day is coming when being a Christian will be seen to be the most sensible thing you could possibly have done. Even though there are days now when it may not feel like it. Friends, Revelation is an apocalyptic book about Jesus written to first century churches going through a hard time. But time and time and time again throughout this series, we will discover that the things which Revelation unveils to them about Jesus, those things will comfort you and I as well. Things like he's the firstborn from the dead. Things like he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Things like... He's coming. 
Blessed indeed is the one who hears those things, takes them to heart. Let's pray. Father, we pray with, with thanks for the book of Revelation. Father, for all its complexity and apparent difficulty, thank you that it is a part of your word that promises to bring us blessing. Thank you for this, this morning for the comfort of knowing that your son has conquered death. He rules all kings and he is coming. Father, we pray that you would help us to read your book of Revelation uh, the way you would like us to read it throughout this series. Please continue to comfort and bring us blessing as you unveil to us things about Jesus. Amen.